The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Glad you're here. Uh, if you're new around here, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm thankful for your presence with us. Um, today's a little different than um, our normal taking a break from our, the series we were in um, on the church, um, and, and it has to be a little different today, doesn't it? Um, I, I figured no matter what I was preaching on, you know, the, the events of, of last week and, and um, the weeks before are just on everyone's hearts and minds in some way. Um, and so just felt led by the Lord to, to address it um, in, in some way, shape, or form. So it's not our, it's not our normal sort of Sunday liturgy, um, the, the heaviness of the senseless, uh, horrific events that happened uh, this last week, on top of uh, the, the senseless, horrific events of two weeks ago in Buffalo, and on top of other events that we've seen uh, recently, um, the, the, the war that still rages on in Eastern Europe and um, I mean, there's so many things, right? If we, if we let ourselves dwell on those things that just start to, I think there's so many events that they, we become desensitized to them until the point that they overwhelm us. And so there's, on top of all that stuff too, there's our own personal tragedies and losses and pain that we are wrestling with, right? And um, there's two temptations in, in these moments, okay? When we see this wave of pain and sorrow and, and grief um, coming at us, we have two temptations. One uh, is anger. Um, anger at God. You know, where are you? Why'd you let this happen? What, you know, doubt and frustration and, and sort of shaking our fists at the sky. Um, but another temptation that I think many of us fall victim to um, is denial. We just bury this stuff. We just stuff it down shove it down because I don't want to think about it. I don't want to be overwhelmed by this grief. But the problem with that is we don't see, have the power to distinguish, well, I'll only bury negative emotions and not positive ones. We bury all our emotions and we actually become emotionally sterile over the course of time. Now, if you read the Bible, what you find is we have a gift that's actually given to us in the scriptures, a gift that allows us to escape the equally destructive um, temptations of, of, of prisons, really, of both anger and dis- in, in denial. Through the Scripture, we actually have this gift called lament, and it's a uniquely Christian gift. It's a uniquely Christ- biblical gift called lament, and if we will enter into it, we'll actually find that lament gives language for the soul to, for those of us who live in the tension between trusting in a good God in an often evil and tragic world. See, the Bible is about real people who really wrestle with trusting God when they witness the brutality uh, that that exists in this life. So what I want to do this morning is I want to call us to Psalm 10, uh, which is one of the Psalms of Lament. And we're going to learn together in this psalm how to lament. And if we, will, you, this, if, if we can embrace this unique gift of lament and learn how to employ it, then, then we actually have language for our souls in, in the dark seasons that we face, whether corporately or individually, okay? So if you have your Bible, please turn to Psalm chapter 10. 
Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's some in the seats there in front of you, seat backs or the seat trays, I guess. Um, it'll also be uh, on the screen, I think. But um, I'd love for you to look on in, uh, on your own copy of God's Word. So Psalm chapter 10, I'm going to read the whole thing, give us context. We'll come back to it and uh, dissect these verses. But if you'll follow along as I read Psalm chapter 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket, that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, crushed, the helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account, but you do see, for you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful to be able to come before you this morning as a child of God because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We're thankful that we can gather in this room under the authority of your word and in the presence of your very spirit now. And Lord, we come with so many things on our hearts and minds. Some angry, bitter, frustrated, some denying and stuffing, some just lost and hopeless. I pray that in these moments as we meet together, that you would minister to us, that you would help us to take these very real feelings that we feel and bring them before you, and that you would meet us in that place, that you would give us hope and confidence in you. You are our only hope. And that we would find even some small sliver of joy in your presence this morning, or this we live in heavy times, but I, my goal for this morning is not that this would be a heavy morning, but that 
it would be a serious morning and yet one that is hopeful. So help us, Lord, um, to put our hope in Christ, our confidence in Christ, um, as we have this very honest discussion this morning through Psalm 10. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Now, if you're unfamiliar with lament, um, I'll remind you or or just inform you that um, about a third of the book of Psalms, which is about 150 Psalms, about a third of that book are Psalms of lament. Um, Beyond that, there's a book of the Bible called Lamentations. Um, And even other books like Habakkuk, the minor prophet, um, is, is largely a, a book of lament, okay? And that's important because what it shows us is that God has given us tools. He's, he's preserved things in His Word to help us process the very real pain and confusion and struggle that so many of us deal with. And while there isn't a, a formula for lament, there are movements that are common. If you read the Psalms of Lament, you'll see these sort of common movements. And so uh, the the sermon points I give you are going to be those movements of lament. And so you can take notes on that, and that'll be kind of how we learn to lament together. So the first one uh, that we see here in these opening, really in verse one, uh, is, is crying out to God. Every lament starts with crying out to God. In fact, the word lament means to wail or to cry out. So that means that verses, verse 1 ought to read something like this. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? There's anguish in it. There's pain in this crying out to God. And he asks very blunt and, and brutally honest questions of God, doesn't he? Maybe too blunt and too honest for some of us in the room. It's almost accusatory. Like the main question that the psalmist is asking, and we don't know the specific context of the psalmist's scenario and why he's crying out like this, but he's essentially saying, where are you? Where are you? Because I'm seeing pain. I'm feeling uh, oppression. I'm experiencing something in this world, and I can't seem to find you anywhere. It feels like you're hiding. And people that you say you care about and love are in anguish and you don't seem to care. That's the heart of the psalmist here. Some of us might hear that and go, are we allowed to talk to God like that? But David did. Jesus did. How many of us, um, whether it's the, the national tragedies we've been watching on the news or our own personal losses and tragedies, how many of us have been wrestling with these same kinds of questions? God, where are you? Why are you hiding? So the Bible is so honest. I, I, one of the things I love about the scripture is that it's so honest. The, the, honest. the psalmist is angry. He seems disillusioned. He might even be having a crisis of faith here, but he's not venting to his therapist. He's not complaining to a friend. Not that those things are wrong. But the psalmist is bringing his whole heart to God. And psalms of lament like this are in the Bible. They've been preserved in the scripture to instruct us us on how to bring our whole heart to God. See, this is a prayer. 
He's, he's crying out to God. He's accusing God, but he's praying to God. One commentator put it like this. He said, it's precisely those who have the closest relationship with God, who feel most at liberty to pour out their pain and protest to God without fear of reproach. Do you feel that freedom? Do you feel that liberty to cry out with whatever it is that you're feeling? See, the psalmist is saying, he's expressing his faith. He may be in crisis, but he hasn't left. He hasn't abandoned. He hasn't dipped. He's right. He's expressing his faith to God saying, what I know about you, God, is not matching up with what I'm experiencing right now. And I need to know what's going on. How many of us can relate to that? But do we feel the freedom to cry out to God like this? God invites it. He invites it. That's why it's in the Bible, to show us that it's okay for us to cry out in similar ways. And so the, the first movement here we see in, the, in, in learning to lament is to cry out to God. But then secondly, we tell him everything. We just pour everything out to him. This is what the psalmist does here in verses 2 through 11. I'm not going to reread all of it, but we'll sort of summarize it. <clears throat> He's got a list of complaints. See, lament is complaining, it's not, but it's not complaining about God. It's complaining to God. And let me tell you, God's chest is big enough for you to pound on. And so he comes before God and he is crying out to God about his felt absence in his life. And then he honestly identifies all the pain points and the frustrations of his life. This is what's happening in the world around him. And he's going he's gonna to say the wicked and he's going to call him he, singular he, but, but the psalmist is not complaining about one individual. There's not just like one bad dude out there that he's like, why is this wicked guy after me? What he's saying is he's personifying wickedness in the world, evil in the world, as an individual. And so you'll see here in, in verse 2, in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. The guiltless, sorry, the guilty, the evil, the godless is coming after the vulnerable and the helpless. In verse 3, he essentially says the, the wicked is bragging about giving himself to whatever his wicked heart desires. In verse 4, he says, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. This godlessness um, in the pride of his face literally can translate as the length of his nose or the height of his nose. He's basically turned his face up, and, and, and he is turning away from God, and, and his, a long nose in the Hebrew idiom is like pride, is arrogance, right? To have a long nose is to be very proud. And, um, and so he's, he's full of himself. He's rejecting the gracious authority of God and choosing to be an authority unto himself. And what's worse, in verse 5, his ways prosper at all times. He's thriving, the wicked are thriving in this world. And, and he, for all his foes, he puffs at them. He just, pfft, right? My, who cares? Now, already some of us are going, yeah, that feels like the world we live in, doesn't it? Notice in verse 6 and in verse 11, 
It says he says in his heart. In verse 6, he says, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. And in verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. This is what the wicked says to himself, right? This is what he's telling himself. I'm like God. I won't be moved. And God has forgotten. He's indifferent. He's not paying attention. And so I can live without regard to God in my life. Verse 7, because Jesus tells us out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, a heart that disregards God and says that God is not to be present, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression and mischief and iniquity. Cursing, lies, violence, trouble, vain emptiness fills the mouths of the wicked. Verse 80 is like a hunter in a tree stand taking aim at the innocent with murderous intent. Verse 9, he equates the wicked to a lion, animalistic, right? Looking to exploit the vulnerable, looking to dominate the defenseless for his own gain. And to that I would say, welcome, this is where we live. A people who are self-focused and self-indulgent and convinced that they do not need God. This is the world we live in. Unless you think I'm being hyperbolic about that, um, Paul, the apostle in Romans chapter 3, actually quotes Psalm 10 in his description of the depravity of mankind. I'll read you uh, just a summary of, um, of Paul's words here in Romans chapter 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And here's, here's the pinnacle. This is why all of this is happening. Verse 18 in chapter 3 of Romans, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So catch this, the manifestation of wickedness in the world, at least one of the manifestations of wickedness in the world, is injustice and oppression and the powerful devouring the powerless. But it has its root in disregarding God has its root in, in disregard for the Lord. Um, many commentators on, on Psalm chapter 10 have called this functional atheism. That regardless of what we profess with our mouths, there are many in this world who live their day-to-day -day lives as if God is uninvolved and doesn't care or doesn't even exist. And beloved, I see that even in the church. That, that, you know, there are people who come in here and we mouth along to the songs on Sunday and we sit here and listen to 30 to 50 minutes of preaching and uh, maybe put a little in the box and shake some hands and then we walk out of here and from 12.01 or 12.31 on Sunday afternoon until 11, let's be honest, 15 on the next Sunday, we live like God is not involved in our lives. 
We don't give ourselves to prayer, to His Word, and to worship, and to biblical community. We get so wrapped up in the things of this world. Um, and then we're shocked when stuff like the last few weeks happens. As if wickedness is a thing that's out there and not something that's in here. I hear, I hear many Christians, not all, But after times like this, I still hear many Christians being very vocal about their rights to own a gun and silent about their responsibility to their neighbor. I see Christians grieved over the gunning down of 19 children in classrooms, but largely silent about the 250,000 children who've been murdered in the womb so far this year. Wickedness is not just a thing out there that we should protect ourselves from. Beloved, it's a thing in here that we need to repent of. Now, after events like we've seen the last couple weeks, you hear a lot, and, and, and rightly so, about things like better care for the mentally ill. We hear things about increasing security at schools and public venues. We hear things about gun control. And all of those issues are important. And all of those issues, should Christians should engage in every one of those issues and think wisely and carefully and biblically about those things. But this is the reality. We have created a culture that does not value life, that does not honor God, that does not respect authority. And we are reaping the consequences of those actions, and they will not be reversed by external legislation. They will only be reversed by God writing His law on the hearts of man. And so we lament. And we cry out to God, and we tell Him everything that frustrates us and, and, and and angers us and makes us sad, whether it's the stuff going on in our world or the stuff going on in our own lives, in our hearts, and we pound on the chest of God knowing that his chest is big enough for us to, to pound on it. And listen, some of you, if we don't give ourselves to that, if we don't lament, okay, the reason why so many of us are so full of anger and anxiety is because we're holding on to these things rather than giving them over to God. He invites us to pound on his chest and give him everything. And to the degree that we do that, we can release it. But when we hold on to it, we're still full of anger and anxiety and bitterness and rage inside because our world is broken and we don't know what to do about it. What we do about it is we come to Jesus. So, we cry out to the Lord in our anger, in our confusion. We list out all of our complaints and frustrations. And then the third movement of lament is that we ask for the Lord's help. That's what you see here in verse 12. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift 
up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. He says, this is a military term. It's a battle cry. Get up. <laughs> Come to our aid. Lift up your hand. He's, he's referencing all the times in the Old Testament where it says that God, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, a symbol of his power, came to save and to deliver his people. So there's a history of God's faithfulness to his people in the past. And so in lament, we find that lament is an act of, of pleading with the Lord on the basis of his character and his promises to his people. And when we lament, um, we have to understand that it, because it is based on his character and his promises, that, that lament is also a function of covenant relationship, right? It's only those who belong to God by faith who have the privilege of lamenting. That's why lament is a uniquely Christian thing, okay? We're coming on the basis of his character and his promises and his faithfulness to us demonstrated most clearly in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for us. And the beauty of what happens here is as this psalmist is, is crying out and expressing all of his complaints to God and asking for his help, he's actually reminded of God's faithfulness and he actually finds um, some solace for his soul. He's reminded of who God is and what God has done before, and that gives him confidence going forward. See, the, the wicked's assumption that God is uninterested and aloof and uninvolved is totally unfounded. Because as he cries out here, why is it, verse 13, why does the wicked renounce God in his heart and say, you will not call to account? Look what he says in verse 14. But you do see You do see, you note, you, make a, you, you, you take notes, you're keeping record of mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands, your hands of judgment to you. The helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. You see everything, God. You've been right here the entire time. And, and I, rem I reminded this verse, uh, I think it's in Second Chronicles. It says, the eyes of the Lord search to and fro across the whole earth, looking for those who he, whom he can rescue with his strong hand. Now listen, I, can't, I cannot answer the question of why God would not intervene in situations like we've just seen and neither can anybody else. I, I can't answer the question why he seems removed and distant at times from these tragedies, but I can, I can tell you this with absolute confidence. The Bible says that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Ultimate justice is his, and evil and wickedness and injustice will never have the final word. You say, I mean, that sounds great, but how, how can we be sure of that? Because in the Bible, every time...
time that God's people have cried out to him and called to him for help, he has come to their rescue. Maybe not in their timing, but in his, but every time that God's people have cried out, called out to him for help, he's come to their rescue, except once. There's one time, there's one cry, there's only one cry in the entire Bible that God did not answer. It's the cry of his own son. It's the cry of Jesus from the cross. When our sin nailed him to that stake and he cried out, quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was met with silence from heaven. Jesus suffered the ultimate injustice because Jesus is God in the flesh and he was crucified by his own people. He was he, he was suffered injustice at the hand of his own creation, nailed to a tree that he made. He was cursed. And, and, and at the cross, God's hand of judgment was lifted up against his own son for all of our wickedness. When we read the description of the wicked in Psalm 10, it's not just the culture we live in that's wicked. This is describing us apart from God. And Jesus bore the wrath of God, the judgment of God for all of our wickedness. In verse 15, he says, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. Jesus absorbed the judgment of God for every one of our sins, for all of our injustice collectively, until there was none. He absorbed it all, took it all on himself so that any who would come to Jesus with humility and with helplessness before God, with open hands, empty hands of faith, can find that he is our help, he is our refuge, he is our savior, he is our advocate, he is our strength. That does not mean that we will not endure pain and suffering and injustice and confusion in this life. Being a Christian doesn't make you immune to any of those things. Jesus says as much to us in Matthew 7 when he talks about the storm coming upon the two houses, one built on the sand and one built on the rock. They both endure the storm. But here's what it means. As we endure pain and suffering and injustice and the confusion of a crazy, wicked world, we have hope. We have hope. Hope that it's not always going to be like this. Hope that this doesn't define reality forever. Paul, who knows a little bit about suffering, says in Romans chapter 8, the sufferings of this life are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. Meaning, like Paul had a hope there was a day coming that Revelation talks about, a day when there is no, no more crying, no more pain, no more injustice, no more tears. And so as we endure the confusion of, of, of the craziness that we experience in this world, as we personally suffer, pain and injustice and and hardship against us, just the brokenness of life. We endure it with hope 
knowing it's not always going to be like this. And, and God promises that every pain, suffering, and injustice that we endure in this life, at the end of all things, when we are gathered together with Him in His presence, every bad thing we've endured on this earth is going to feel like one bad night in a horrible hotel. We have hope. We grieve, we suffer, but not as those who don't have hope. And so finally, we, 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 we cry out to God in lament. We bring our pain and our complaints before God in lament. We call for God's help in lament, and there's a unique result that comes from it. Though we weep, we find comfort in trusting a God who is both sovereign and sympathetic. So my last note here, the last movement of lament is that we choose to trust him. We choose to trust him. Look at verses um, 16 and following. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. The nations being, you know, again, the personification of wicked, of evil. They will perish. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. You see the contrast between the, the way this psalm opened and the way that it closes? Why do you stand far away, Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? That's verse 1. Then verse 17, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. He's gained confidence and trust in his sovereign and sympathetic God. Um, he says, you are the eternal king. You have been faithful to your covenant, and you have promised to judge, and you will judge evil and wickedness, and you will deal with it. You will fully and finally deal with all the wickedness and injustice in this world. You are sovereign. You are powerful. But notice what he also says here. In verse 17, oh Lord, you hear the what? The prayers of the afflicted? What's he say? You hear the desire of the afflicted. What is that? He doesn't say you hear the prayers, although he certainly includes that and means that. But it goes deeper than that. You don't just hear the prayers of the afflicted. You hear their heart's desire. Those those longings within each of us that are too tender and too deep for, for us to put into words, he hears those. Those longings in our souls that we just feel too, too inadequate or too unworthy to come before God and, and ask for these things, he hears those desires. You hear the desire of the afflicted. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows the turmoil and the yearnings of our hearts. And I think one of the clearest places to see this um, exemplified, this sovereign and sympathetic king, is in John chapter 11. We're not going to turn there, but I'll just um, summarize it for you briefly. In John chapter 11, um, <clears throat> Jesus has a friend named Lazarus, and Lazarus is sick. And not like a little stuffy like me, like he's on death's doorstep. 
to the point that his sisters, Martha and Mary, they travel to meet Jesus and they say, hey, you got to come help. Like, we need you, okay? And the text says, I'm paraphrasing, but it basically says, and Jesus loved him, so he stayed where he was for two more days. And Lazarus dies. And so finally, Jesus gathers up the disciples and he says, hey, let's, let's go, let's go. And they get to where Lazarus is. And of course, he's already dead and buried. So it's been at least four days by this point. And both of the sisters, when they see Jesus approaching, they come to him and they basically say what the psalmist says in chapter 10, verse 1. Where were you? Why, why didn't you come? Why didn't you? You could have intervened. You could have done something. You could have fixed this. You could have prevented it. Why didn't you do something, Jesus? Why didn't you intervene? Why didn't you come? Where were you? And Jesus says, can I see where they laid him? And they bring Jesus to the tomb. In the shortest verse in the entire Bible, Jesus wept. It's always befuddled me why Jesus wept. Right? Because he's God in the flesh. Like he's, he's got perfect knowledge. He knows he's going to say, Lazarus, come forth, and he's going to come out of that tomb. He's got perfect power. He knows with a word, he'll bring him back to life. Like he, he's got perfect knowledge, perfect power. Why would Jesus weep at the tomb? You know why? Because he's also perfect love. And he weeps with those who weep. And upon coming into this funeral scene and seeing the sisters and their grief, he grieves with them. He weeps with them. Jesus weeps with those who weep. So we have in lament this divine invitation to bring all of our fears and all of our frustrations and all of our sorrows to God. And as we pour out our souls to him in lament, our hearts are actually opened to receive the balm of of his healing grace. And we gain strength to navigate this tension between God's goodness and the darkness of this very hard life that we live. As we wait together, Christians, as we wait together for our good and gracious King to return and to make all the sad things come untrue. So here's what I want to do in the time we have remaining. Um, We've been trying to integrate this little moment of silence in our gatherings. Um, and I think it's meaningful and helpful, especially in light of what we just heard. And so um, we're going to take a, an extended uh, time of silence. And then um, when I get up f- from my seat and come to the communion tables, then that'll be the signal that they're open. And here's what I want you to remember as we move to communion. Um, communion is a, a remembrance of, a rehearsal of Jesus's life and death and resurrection. He lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, right? Tempted as every way that we are without sin. He died a perfect substitutionary, satisfactory death 
in our place, absorbing the wrath of God for us so that God's wrath will be turned to mercy and favor towards us. And he rose from the grave, conquering sin, death, and hell so that we could be included in the family of God and, and welcome to his table. But in communion, we're also remembering, we're looking forward to that day when we are joined together with Christ and we feast. There is a feast that we will participate in before the presence of our God in eternity in that day where there is no more pain and no more sorrow. And so uh, communion is in that sense a foretaste of the, the glory to come. It's a foretaste of that meal to come when we will sit at the table with our gracious King and enjoy a life without sorrow forever. And so we can come to the tables lamenting and hopeful at the same time. And so that's what I want to invite you to do, to come lamenting, but come hopeful. If you're not a Christian, you can stay in your seats during this time, but um, we'll have maybe two minutes, two, three minutes of silence, and then I'll get up and I'll um, come to the table. There's two stations at each uh, table, um, juice, wine, uh, gluten-free wafers at both um, little trays there. And so you can come to those tables to participate in communion. Um, and then as you make your way back to your seats, the band's going to lead us in a corporate lament together. And then we're going to sing a, a couple of songs uh, reflecting on the goodness of our God. And then we'll get you out of here on to the rest of your day. Let me pray for us, and then we'll have a moment of silence. Uh, Father in heaven, I'm so grateful for these people and for their willingness to engage with um, hard things. And... Um, Lord, I know that it feels heavy, and I, I pray that it is still hopeful today um, as we look to your word um, to help us get handles for how to process um, just the, the confusion of this life that we live. Um, all these really difficult, really sad things that make us question where in the world you are, and yet you are right here with us, and you weep with every one of those families that is weeping this morning. You weep with each one of us as we weep over the trials, the pain that we face. And yet you remind us that our pain is not the end. There is a day to come so we can have hope. And so, Lord, help us to hope in you and in you alone this morning as we come to these tables, as we sing, as we lament together. May we be filled with hope in our risen King. And... Um, Meet us here with your Spirit's presence. Sustain us and strengthen us for the days ahead. We love you. We thank you for this time in your word, and I pray your blessing over these people as we respond to you now, as we sit silent in your presence. We ask your blessing in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.